Good morning, everybody. Please turn to Genesis chapter 21. Today we're going to be looking at the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech. And as this text that we have today closes, we'll see Abraham worshiping the Lord. And we'll see a new name for the Lord God, new to our Genesis study. There in verse 33, it says the everlasting God. So we'll also be looking at that. So look with me at the the first verse, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 22. It says, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech here is the king of Gerar. We see that in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 2. The name Abimelech and his commander, Phicol, are probably titles for these two men rather than actual names. At least 75 years later, Isaac is dealing with another Abimelech. And another fickle. These are also Philistines. It's in Genesis 26. And in Psalm 34, the title of the psalm says, A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. That account is in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 10. And the, the man who David pretended to be crazy too. Does anybody remember that text? It's Achish. It's Achish, the Philistine king of, Ga- of Gath. So Achish is called Abimelech at the title of Psalm 34. So here we have at least three different Philistine kings all called Abimelech. So this name Abimelech would have been a title for these kings, just like the pharaohs of Egypt. Abimelech means father is king. He came to to speak to Abraham with Pickle, the commander of his army. So this king was always protected. This commander of his army, I, I can imagine, if If the king told him, he could have killed Abraham in a heartbeat. If the Lord, of course, would have allowed that. But he had this commander by his side all the time. This was a powerful man, this king. And Abraham was dwelling in his territory. But as powerful as he was, he didn't let that get to his head. As we look at this Abimelech, we looked at him in the chapter before. As we look at him, we'll see that he actually had good characteristics about him. For being an an unbeliever, a pagan a Philistine, a Gentile. He had good characteristics about him. So before we get into our text, I think it would be helpful to look at the relationship that Abraham already had with this man in the previous chapter. Remember, it was, it was in the previous chapter that it was Abraham who deceived Abimelech rather than the other way around. Abraham lied to him about Sarah, or at least gave him a half-truth, saying that Sarah was his sister, but leaving out the, the fact that she was actually his wife. So Abimelech rebuked Abraham for what he did. And by the way, we, in, in, in Abraham's walk with Lot or relationship with Lot, we never saw Lot rebuking Abraham. But we see this, this pagan king rebuking Abraham in the previous chapter, in chapter 20. This king had integrity. He asked Abraham why he had lied to him, why he had deceived him in this way and basically brought sin upon the people. Of course, Abimelech wasn't innocent in the matter. But because of Abraham, because of Abraham's lie, the Lord had brought a curse upon Abimelech's people. So he asked him why he had lied to him, why he had deceived him. And there in chapter 20 and verse 11, what was Abraham's response to Abimelech when he asked him why he had done this to him? Abraham responded in chapter 20, verse 11. 
because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. Abraham's motives were, were selfish. He was self-centered. He was just thinking about his, his own safety and, and that's not always wrong if we're in a dangerous situation and we think about our own self-preservation and we can't protect ourselves, well then the right thing would be to just flee the situation to protect yourself. That's not always wrong. But in Abraham protecting himself, he endangered his wife. He endangered her sexual purity. He endangered her physical safety. And that was wrong. And Abraham's response to the king also could have easily insulted the king. If Abimelech was a man who was, who was arrogant, an arrogant man, a, a self-righteous man, a prideful man, his, his response, Abraham's response could have easily been an insult to him. He said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. But Abimelech didn't get defensive at that. How did he respond to Abraham after he brought this this situation on him. I think he called it like a great evil, this great difficulty. God cursed all of Abraham's... God cursed Abimelech himself and closed the wombs of all, of all of the women because he had taken Sarah. Well, Abimelech showed Abraham integrity. He showed him kindness. In chapter 20, verses 14 through 16, it says that he gave Abraham sheep, oxen, and male and female servants. He restored Sarah to him. He told Abraham, see, my land is before you, live or dwell anywhere where you want to. He, uh, he told Sarah that he had given Abraham a thousand pieces of silver on her behalf. So the king was the one who was wronged, yet he gave bountifully to Abraham in order to make peace with him because of the whole incident with Sarah. Then at the end of chapter 20, that's where we see that Abraham prayed for Abimelech and God had healed him and his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. God had opened their wombs again. So in, in this relationship with Abraham and Abimelech, we see how a good, a relationship can be a good relationship, a proper relationship. Even in this situation where it got off to a very bad start, the relationship was very good. And we can learn from this. We can learn how in our relationships, we can have good relationships, regardless of whether it's between believers or unbelievers, specifically in this case, Abraham's the believer, and Abimelech is the unbeliever. So let's look at our text. I'm going to read starting in verse 22. Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me, and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. 
So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So throughout this look at Genesis, we've seen Abraham. He stood out to us throughout so many chapters. I think since the end of chapter 12 it was that we saw Abraham. And we saw his relationships with other people, how this man knew how to have good relationships with everybody that he came across. We can remember when his servants and Lot's servants were arguing with each other. He was sure to be the one to keep the peace with his nephew Lot. In Genesis chapter 14 and verse 13, it, it makes a point to tell us in the scriptures that he was allies with those who, who he lived, lived next to. And those allies who he lived next to, it says it's Anner, Eshko, and Mamre. They're mentioned again in Genesis 14 and verse 24. And the scriptures say that these men living next to Abraham actually went with him when he went to rescue his, his nephew Lot. They went with him in his battle to rescue his nephew. Abraham was a man who knew how to attract kindness from other people and respect from other people. And even though Abraham was this way, he wasn't a compromiser. He wasn't a people pleaser. We know that because of how he responded in the same chapter, Genesis 14, when he responded to the king of Sodom. Do you remember how he responded to him? He wasn't someone who was scared of offending people if he knew it was the right thing to do. He was a, a, an interesting man because he did have a sense of a fear of man. That's why he lied about his wife on two different occasions with two different kings. The Pharaoh in Egypt and then, and then here, um, Abimelech also in the last chapter. So he did struggle with this fear of man, but at the same time he was not a, we would, we could say he wasn't a man pleaser. But he had good relationships with those people around him. And then here in this chapter, here in chapter 21, we have the king of Gerar coming and making a personal visit to Abraham, seeking out some kind of peace treaty with him. And we can even, Go back in our minds to Genesis 19. The way that this king came to Abraham with his commander at his side in a respectful way, seeking out peace with Abraham, was way different than how the men of Sodom came banging upon Lot's door and Lot going out of his house begging them to behave themselves. Of course, that's a different story with a, with a different person, but that's my point exactly. Abraham knew how to conduct himself around other people. Other people respected him. And it wasn't because of his great wealth. It wasn't because he was a, a great political figure. It was because he showed himself to be a man of God. Scriptures make that clear to us. Because he showed himself to be a man of God and he lived out his faith before other people. He didn't hide that from other people. And Abimelech saw this. He said there in verse 22, To Abraham... God is with you in all that you do. Even after Abraham showed himself to be a deceiver in how he lied about Sarah, Abimelech still recognized that God was with him. He, he showed how he worshiped God in private and in public. He was known for a person who worshiped God and who walked with God. And, and this was the reason for Abraham's success in all of his relationships. This was what, why God blessed him, why God's Favor was upon him. And it'll be the same reason for our success in all of our relationships too. 
We can see this same thing of the favor of God upon Abraham's life. We also see it with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. We'll get there eventually. In Genesis 26, verses 27 through 28, Isaac said to the people around him, he said, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And verse 28, but they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. There it is. The Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. So even though the people around Isaac, Abraham's son, hated him, they still wanted a covenant with him because they knew God was with him. We saw that in Joseph's life. I'm sure we're familiar with that in Genesis chapter 39. We'll get to that eventually too. In verses 2, 3, 5, and 23, all in Genesis 39, the chapter there tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper in everything that he did. God helps all of his people in their relationships with other people. And it's not just this way with the patriarchs. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is a promise that God gives to all of his people. Again, in the early church. This is an extreme case, but with the early church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, remember when God killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit? In Acts 5 and verse 13, it says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Even though they didn't really have a love for God, they, they weren't religious enough to join with, with the early church, they knew that God was with them. They knew that they were a people of God. They esteemed them highly. They respected them. And there were things that Abimelech saw in Abraham's life that showed him that God's favor was upon him. One thing would have been his great wealth and all of the servants under his command that showed he was a successful man. Another thing, he could have known about the defeat that Abraham Abraham had against the four kings, showing his military strength, his military capability. Also, Abraham had just answered, or the Lord had just answered Abraham's prayer and healed Abimelech and healed all of his people. And then also Sarah was there with her newborn child. Abraham, a hundred years old, and Sarah, ninety years old. But that doesn't happen if God's not with them. God also came to Abimelech in a dream and told him that Abraham's a prophet, told him to give him his wife back. So Abimelech saw all these things and, and realized this is a man of God. God is with this man. Even through his weaknesses, even through a sin, this is someone who belongs to God. So he told, he told Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. And, and that's what makes this statement all the more amazing is that what we're looking here is, is looking at here is not some picture of Abraham being this holy saint with a halo around his head, kind of levitating in the air, unapproachable, someone who's different than you and me, some patriarch that, that must not have been a, a man like us, someone between manhood and godhood. This is a man with sin like us, dealing with struggles and people like us, dealing with pride like us, trying to walk with God and trying to walk with God with other people. And even though this unbeliever was sinned against by Abraham, he comes and he recognizes God is with him. 
God is with you in all that you do. That is a very amazing statement for him to make about Abraham. Abraham's faith wasn't, wasn't perfect, but he really loved God. His faith was real. He really walked with God and he wasn't ashamed to let other people know it. And, and God will do that in our lives as well. If we don't allow our salt to lose its flavor, if we don't hide our light from the world, if we don't hide our Christianity from our relationships with other people, not just with other Christians, not just with our immediate family, but from other people, our extended family, coworkers, strangers, if we act Christian in those environments in the same way as we act Christian maybe in our own prayer closet and with our own church brethren, people will take notice. People will see that God is with us. So the king and Fickle paid Abraham this visit. And the king told Abraham, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land which you have dwelt. He wanted to be sure that Abraham would not treat him the way that he did in the past, that Abraham would not wrong him like he already did. And Abraham said, I will swear. You know how I said that this king Abimelech was a man who had integrity. Well, he realized that Abraham was no ordinary man. For a a lack of a better way to say it, I, I think one thing he realized was that Abraham was a powerful man. A powerful man. Thing about The thing about powerful men is they can do great good, but they can also do great bad. And in, in this case, because of Abraham's sin, God brought a curse upon Abimelech and all of his people. Of course, Abimelech wasn't innocent in the matter. He took his wife. But if this was with any other man other than Abraham, this wouldn't have happened to Abimelech. Abraham was a powerful man. It's a very similar situation with Jonah. And the boat, because of Jonah's sin, the whole boat might have been capsized. So, like Jonah, Abraham was someone that Abimelech needed to watch, needed to get to know, needed to be aware of what is going on with him. And Abraham was dwelling in his territory. So, Abimelech, being a wise king that he was, he went directly to Abraham and checked this man out. Wanted to make sure that things were well with him. Wanted to be sure that there was some kind of agreement of peace between him and Abraham. So this this was a wise king. And then he also told Abraham, swear to me that you will do good to the land in which you dwelt. Again, this king cared about the territory that he was in charge over. He cared about the people who were there. He cared about the land that was under his authority. And we see that in how he treated Abraham. And Abraham took that opportunity to tell him about a well that Abimelech's servants had taken from him. So he told him that that his servants had taken this well from him. Abimelech's response was that he didn't know about the situation. It wasn't done under his command. It wasn't brought to his knowledge. And then look at verses 27 and 28 of our text. What did Abraham do in response to having this well taken from him? It says, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. So as a response to the king coming to him, the king came to him and wanted this this kind of a a peace treaty with, with Abraham. And in response to this, Abraham took sheep and oxen and he gave them to the king. And then Abraham went to those sheep that he was giving to the king and he separated 
seven ewe lambs. So seven young lambs. So he went and he grabbed one and he put it aside. He went and he looked around at all the, all the sheep that he had in the flock. He grabbed another one. He put it aside. So he's doing this with seven of the lambs. He's picking seven of the ewe lambs, the youngest of the lambs. So Abimelech's looking and he's seeing Abraham doing all of this. Finally, there's seven lambs separated from the other sheep and oxen that Abraham is giving to Abimelech. And the king asks him, what are you doing, Abraham? Why are you separating those seven of the youngest lambs? What is the purpose of this? And Abraham tells him, you will take these seven new lambs from my hand that they may be my witnesses that I have dug this well. So he picked out the seven of the youngest lambs, probably the ones that he thought would live the longest out of the rest of all the gifts that he's given to the king. That way, those lambs would be a witness to the king, a testimony to the king that as long as those lambs are alive, as long as he's aware of those lambs being given to him by Abraham, that well is going to be secure in Abraham's care. The king's going to make sure that that well belongs to Abraham and that no one's messing with him anymore. No one's harassing him about that well. And we can kind of understand what's going on. Here's this stranger. Here's this foreigner living here in Gerar. Here the people of Gerar are thinking, why did he set up camp right next to this well? And now he's using the well and treating it as if it's his own. So they went there and took it by force from Abraham. And Abraham let it happen. He, he realized this wasn't something he needed to fight with, a battle that he needed to, to deal with. So he just let them take the well. Now he had an opportunity to tell the king about it. So the king is making sure, as long as he has that, that gift from Abraham, he'd probably tell his servant, go check on Abraham. Check how he's doing. Make sure he's not being harassed anymore by those people. Make sure he's doing okay. So these young lambs were given as a gift. That reminded me of a, that reminded me of the story of the peace child. Anybody familiar with that story? A missionary. This was, this was recent in the 1960s. If you don't think that's recent, you're too young. <laughs> but this was recent for me. This was just in the, in the 60s. This missionary named Don Richardson went to New Guinea to work among the cannibals there. And, and he was there teaching them and preaching to them. And the, the, the tribes were fighting with each other all the time. And as he was preaching to them, he shared the gospel with them. He told them about Jesus Christ. He told them, he walked through the scriptures with them and they weren't getting it. He was getting no response. No response from them until he got to Judas. When he got to Judas and talked about Judas, they suddenly got excited about Judas. They thought Judas was their hero. And he was thinking, what is this? Is this a lost cause? Is all my work here a lost cause? Are these people just, just a lost cause and I need to go find another place to go to? The one who is a betrayer is their hero. The one who is a savior is not interesting to them. Well, these people who are always fighting with each other, always at war with each other, they had something that they would do with their enemy tribes. They called it to fan with friendship for the slaughter. So if there wasn't a war going on between different tribes, they would seek to make peace with other tribes. And this was all a strategy to try to Make this one man think, well, he's going to bring peace between the two tribes. He's going to finally be the peacemaker. And all the while, they're fatting him with friendship for the slaughter. They're finding an opportunity to get him alone to where they could kill him. And they, they, they were happy about that, like that was some great feat. That was what was seen to be a good thing, a virtue in those tribes. So Don Richardson was wondering how he was going to get them to see that that's not a good thing. Jesus Christ is who they needed to follow and the gospel is the only good thing that they needed. 
until we realized that there was a centuries-old tradition that these tribes had had. There, there was a time when they were warring against each other, and he actually saw this going on, where th- there was a meeting one, one day. A meeting, the two kings, or I guess the two chieftains from the tribes, met together, and all of their people met together. They weren't fighting. And then all of a sudden, he saw a man coming, running with a baby. And he's running all the way with the baby, and he sees a woman chasing him down. And this woman's wailing. Well, the man is the father of that baby. The woman is the mother of that baby. And she's trying to stop him. He sees her fall into the mud, just wailing. She knew she couldn't stop her husband from doing what he's going to do. He went and he gave that baby to to, to his chief. His chief gave that baby to the, the enemy's chief. And then they, they had a family already assigned who was going to take that baby and care for the child. And they would treat that child as if he was their own. And then that tribe would get a baby and, and give that baby to the, the enemy tribe and they would have a family assigned who would take care of that baby as if it was their own. And as long as those children were alive, those two tribes would have peace with each other. They would be allies with each other. They, they would suddenly go from being enemies to being friends, to being there for each other as long as those babies were alive. Of course, it was a very difficult thing. The mom of the, of the, of the child would realize I would never have this child as my own anymore. I'll never get to nurse this child again. I'm basically giving up this child for adoption. So it was a difficult thing. And, and they would, there would be these, there would be war and there would be people dying and they would be going to these moms and asking them, will you give up your baby? No, I can't. Will, will you give up your baby? Well, no, this is my only child. And the war would continue going on. People would continue dying until someone gave up their child. And that's when Don Richardson realized the Lord had placed this centuries-old tradition in these tribes people to where he could bring it the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world is God's enemy and God gave his only son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate peace child. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful book called Peace Child. And he was able to tell them the gospel. And many people got saved when their hearts were changed by the Lord. So in, in a that's an amazing story, but in a similar way, I, I got thinking about that. Well, Abraham is giving these seven young lambs to Abimelech, and as long as these gifts were given to him, well, he's going to make sure that that well belonged to Abraham. And also they are now at, at peace with each other. He gave seven ewe lambs. Seven means perfection or completion making sure that this covenant between the two was a sure thing, that it wasn't to be broken. Verse 31 says, Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Beersheba means well of the seven, referring to the oath that they had made. So remember in the last chapter, Abraham had wronged Abimelech. And what did Abimelech do for Abraham when Abraham wronged him? Well, he gave him sheep, oxen, servants, silver, and told him that he could stay anywhere in his land where he wanted. Abimelech was the one wronged, yet he gave. And then in this chapter, Abraham is the one wronged by Abimelech's servants. And what did Abraham do for Abimelech? In verses 27 to 30, he gave Abimelech sheep and oxen. Abraham was the one wronged, yet he gave to Abimelech. So these two men are having a difficult time being enemies with each other because they are so giving to each other because of how they responded to each other when they were wronged. If you hurt me again, I'm going to give you more gifts. It's hard to be an enemy of someone like that unless you're really evil. 
unless you're really deceitful. But these two people, these two men, believer and unbeliever, patriarch dwelling in his territory and, and the king of Gerar, respected each other. They liked each other. They, they were friends with each other. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife. These two men were not stirring up any strife between each other. They were actually living out what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who curse you. They were treating each other the way the Apostle Peter would command. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. They were treating each other the way God calls people to treat one another. And we should treat each other this way too. Is this a, a revolutionary thought for us as Christians? When wronged, give. So let's look at the last two verses of our text, verses 33 through 34. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So this chapter closes with Abraham calling on the name of the Lord. Even though he had many faults, as I already went over, he feared man, he lied about his wife, he endangered her, he listened to his wife's foolish idea about Hagar, but he had an audience with God. He walked with God. He worshipped God. He called upon him. He spoke to him. Abraham walked with God and he knew God. But our response to this shouldn't just be, well, yeah, well, that's Abraham. You know, that's that's Abraham. Well, God still allows men and women and children to walk with him today. God still hears people's prayers. God still answers people's prayers. And God still meets with people. He still meets with his people in real and special, tangible ways. And we can learn this from Abraham. We can learn this, that Abraham's Abraham's life shows us that his spirituality was no secret. Abraham's great spirituality, his great walk with God, was no secret. Just read through Genesis, Genesis and see. We saw in Lot's life, we saw Lot's life, and we saw nothing of his spiritual life. We saw nothing of his prayer life. We saw nothing of his personal time with God. We saw nothing of Lot worshiping the Lord like Abraham did. Of course, all of this is according to God's providence. God worked with Abraham the way he saw fit. But we also saw that Abraham was a spiritual man, building altars, worshiping the Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord. Chapter after chapter, his spiritual life was not hidden to us. He called out to the Lord. He prayed in Genesis 15. We see a time where he's actually complaining to God that God hadn't given him a son yet and his chief servant was going to be his heir. He loved God. He walked with him and he knew him. And his spiritual effectiveness was no secret. So James 2.23 calls Abraham the friend of God. So do we want to be closer to the Lord? Well, learn from Abraham, right? Amen. Learn from Abraham. And Abraham called on a particular name of God. He called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. According to the Hebrew... Abraham called on Yahweh, its Lord with all caps, the personal name for God. Then there is El, which is translated as God. Then Olam, 
meaning eternal. So Abraham called on Yahweh, God, eternal. This was a special time in Abraham's life. Abraham and Sarah had left Ur together 25 years before this, and they had no children. When Abraham was 75 years old, that was the first time that God initially gave this promise to Abraham, promising him the, the land and promising him that he would make him into a great nation. Now this is 25 years later that Abraham is praying to God here at the end of Genesis 21. 25 years later, he's a hundred years old now. And those were 25 frustrating years for Abraham. We know it's frustrating because there in Genesis 15, he's complaining to God. He doesn't have a son yet. His servant's going to be the son. He agreed with his wife to impregnate Hagar because his wife wasn't pregnant yet. And then even though it's his wife's idea, she doesn't want Ishmael or his mom living there anymore. So has them leave, which was obviously grieving to Abraham. So this was a very frustrating 25 years for Abraham. And now that Abraham has his son, he has Isaac there with him. And he's looking back on those 25 years and he's realizing they weren't as bad as I thought they were at the time because God was with him. God was with him through it all. And God's timing is perfect. So Abraham calls on Yahweh, God eternal. We read in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Second Peter 3.8 says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So God is not bound in time like we are. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. That means he is outside of time. God has no beginning and no end. There never was a time when God was not, and there never was, and there never will be a time when God will not be. So what is time? What is time? How do we define time? Succession of moments. A measure of change. Succession, it has change in it, it's for man. Okay. Was, is, and will be past, present, and future, before and after. All of these have to do with time. I think, Michael, you said change. And time has to do with change. There needs to be change in order for there to be time. I read in the World Book Encyclopedia, as I was studying time and having a difficult time trying to define it, it said, time is one of the world's deepest mysteries. No one can say exactly what it is. Then it said, one way of thinking about time is to imagine a world without time. This timeless world would be a standstill. But if some kind of change took place, that timeless world would be different now than it was before. The period, no matter how brief, between before and now, indicates that time must have passed. Thus, time and change are related because the passing of time depends on changes taking place. I hope I'm not just confusing us even more. But we see there that Time is a mystery. And as creatures, we're bound in time. But God is not bound in time. God is not bound in anything. God is outside of time. He's before time and after time. I think time has to do with creation. Time began with creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God being from everlasting, He's everlasting, He's eternal, means that He was there in the beginning and He was there before the beginning and He will be there in the end. And He'll be there after the end. It says there in Genesis 1, it mentions void and darkness. Well, void and darkness sounds a lot like a lack of change, a standstill, there being no time. And we know in creation that God said, let there be light. And he divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Then he created the second and the third heavens, the sun and the stars and the galaxies. The cycles of the moon and the cycles of the sun are how we tell time. It's how we tell days and weeks and months and years and seasons. And God is not bound in any of this. But he uses it for his own purposes. He uses time for his own purposes, like how he gave Abraham a promise and then God fulfilled that promise in his own timing. And Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28, God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times. God has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should hear this, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So time is a great mystery, and we really can't understand it. We can't. We really can't reckon with it. But God is greater than time. And time is actually God's tool. He uses it according to his purposes. He uses it as he sees fit in the same way that a carpenter would use a saw to divide and separate and to build and to create. God uses time as his tool for his own purposes. As mysterious as time is, as great as time is, this thing that we can't even really define, but we know we're in, we're stuck in, we're bound by it. Abraham was frustrated through those 25 years, but God is not bound by it. God is outside of it. God is eternal. He is everlasting. He's greater than time. He's greater than time. He actually uses it for his own purposes. And our everlasting God is always with his people. Psalm 90 verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And Abraham realized that God was with him through it all. God is with his people through it all. His everlasting God and our everlasting God. So as we close, we see that Abraham had planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. We've always seen Abraham building altars, but this is the first time we see him planting a tree. When he lived in Hebron, he dwelt there by the, it says, by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And I think that when, we're, when I was looking through Genesis, he be, began to live in Hebron. I think it's like in chapter 14. And all the way until he moved now to Beersheba, he lived there in Hebron. He had all those trees around him. And now that he's at a, a new place here in Beersheba, he's going to stay a while. So we see him planting a tree or planting trees. It says in verse 34 of our text, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines Many days. So he's planting trees. In the same way as when we buy homes or cars or or a car, we want to be sure that it has air conditioning. Well, when Abraham moves to a new place, if he doesn't have the proper trees there, he starts planting trees. He's going to stay there for a while. 
And I'm sure that he's thinking about the promise that God had made to him. That land is a promise for him and his family and his descendants after him. So Abraham was thinking of future generations as he was planting those trees. He he had long-term goals in mind. And this season in Abraham's life is, is a bit of a respite. It's a time for Abraham to relax. God gives his servants time to relax. He gives his people times to enjoy what they have. Abraham was there. He was able to enjoy his wife. He was able to enjoy their son. He was able to enjoy the land that God had promised to him. He was able to enjoy a a time when he had peace with the king, with King Abimelech. Everything was fine. The servants weren't messing with him anymore. This was a this was a bit of a respite, a, a time of rest for Abraham. Why? Because he was going to encounter the greatest trial of his life. God was going to call him to the land of Moriah and have him offer his son there. That's in the very next chapter that we have. So in this time of rest, Abraham can have time to worship God and to prepare emotionally and spiritually because a great trial is coming his way, even though he doesn't know it yet. Well, let's close there. Let's pray. Thank mm-hmm. you.